0: People announced their earnings, I think last week and year over year, their revenue, I think almost doubled. And they basically announced that with this newfound, you know, 100 plus billion dollars, they're going to do at least a 90 billion dollar stock buyback. They are going to add probably another 50 billion dollars to what is already a 153 billion dollar portfolio. Of financial assets that they put their money in, which are pretty remarkable. It's like one of those things to take a moment and kind of take stock of what's going on in the world of blue chip <laughs> multinational corporations these days, and that the money is, they're almost stopping putting money back into production, right? Labor or capital that is core to the reproduction of, say, like their supply chain or the sort of international empire What is it that makes a corporation, once they get to this size, say, like, you know, $500 billion to a trillion dollar company, what makes them stop putting money into the company and just becoming like a big hedge fund? Uh, Apple has sort of like crossed over the event horizon of becoming subsumed by financial logic as it's sort of be all end all. We were saying this $90 billion stock buyback. Instead of putting $90 billion into the company itself or doing mergers and acquisitions to buy out maybe vertically the supply chain or competitors, which, you know, Apple has mm-hmm. has been keen on doing and these companies have been doing, but that's not even what they're doing anymore. The goal is to rise the stock price, to raise the stock price as much as possible, you know? And right. financialization is, is so clearly in full effect when Apple in their decision-making are making decisions solely for the creation of short-term value for their shareholders.
1: And I mean, in, like part of that too is just how Apple represents themselves as like a brand in terms of a lifestyle brand in a way less than a technology mm-hmm. brand. And I guess my, my question just cause you have a little bit more experience with finance capital, how do you see that particular transition in terms of like from a theoretical framework like, I know we've talked about this a little bit with like Baudrillard and Deleuze's notion of the virtual. How do you kind of see this with Apple?
0: Yeah, well, also, let's start by sort of nailing down what financialization is. I'll use uh, the Marxist economist, Kostas Labavitsas. He has this tripartite definition of what financialization consists of that I think is very helpful. First off is exactly what Apple is doing, where sort of non-financial enterprises, non-financial companies become increasingly invested into financial assets. But another part is that the banks and financial institutions are increasing their relationship to individuals and households. So that means on one level, like what you saw happening, especially in the 90s and the 2000s, where the democratization of financial instruments has sort of been pushed Onto consumer markets in the eyes of capital, increase the liquidity of the markets and basically provide a sucker who will take the bad end of deals, which is just sort of like the average day trader who doesn't have the informational edge to trade properly. So banks want to do more and more business with households when it comes to finance and when it comes to taking things like their mortgages, packaging them, selling them as financial assets. That's Sort of the second part and then there's a third part which speaks to what i was talking about earlier about individuals and households trading where individuals are increasingly focused on almost acting like a hedge fund and you kind of see this today people our age especially with cryptos where it's almost like we're all assumed traders you know what i mean and we all are sort of assumed that we've missed a specific bull market or that we were technically at worst, we were traders in a market and we just simply chose not to. It's clear that financialization as it's expanded has not just been a material restructuring of society, but a psychosocial restructuring of society, right? Mm -hmm. The ideas of finance, the logic of financial decision-making has come to permeate both the corporate world with corporate finance becoming the be all end all financial logic of the system, but also households in the financial logic of the system. Nowadays, the individual in the household is assumed to have at least some financial strategy and financial logic. I mean, it's basically pushed onto us the idea of a 401k and the idea of retirement is this sort of like putting the individual financial responsibility of your future into the hands of individuals instead of the hands of say, like a big pension fund like you might have in the past, where the state or a private Mm -hmm. uh, capital group would run your money for you. Now, individuals are acting as their own traders, you know? This sort of middleman between the, uh, I mean, people don't even use stockbroker, where he just traded for you. It was like a very stupid middleman. And now that's been taken out, and now you trade directly through the computer.
1: I mean, you bring up a good point because a lot of this seems to be partly a transition from the fall of the USSR and the rise of this hyper-individualization that you see in, you know, like the 80s Reagan era slash Thatcher. You know, it kind of solidified this notion of, like you mentioned, the individual is responsible for their own finances, their own financial strategy within their home, and that extends to their home unit. There's that quote by Margaret Thatcher, which is... Uh, you know, the only thing that exists is the individual, and then they forget about that second part, which is, and their families.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, in kind of way, it presents itself as this, quote-unquote, democratization of the market, mm-hmm. but most people aren't actually, like you mentioned, they're not actually informed in any of this, and and mm-hmm. they obviously don't have any insider knowledge, like you mentioned. So, it really comes down to whether or not the market fails, you know, again, it comes into this notion of it's your personal responsibility or your personal sh- shortcoming. If, for mm-hmm. example, your 401k, you know, however good we do is however you good you do. And they kind of picture it as this, like, almost communal yeah. form of finance. But in at the end of the day, it, it really isn't.
0: Yeah, financialization kind of makes itself out to be like this mass democratization of things that used to be sort of like elitist tools of control, mm-hmm. mainly these complex financial assets that only they... Got to use. What we're seeing, and I think the GameStop situation speaks to this, is that the ideology is this, this kind of like neutrality, mass democratization, even playing field, you know, you can compete against the hedge funds, you can trade with the same financial instruments. Right. But if if that ends up happening, and those, you know, old school elitist institutions like the hedge funds and the iBanks are on the losing side of a bet, then the system doesn't function properly to them. They need to restructure the the system itself. So you see that it's not actually an even playing field, but why is it not an even playing field? I think you speak to it in terms of, there's almost an information hierarchy, you know? Right. Finance is entirely about information arbitrage. Who has more information? What information can you leverage or utilize to make a good investment? And information is, is almost uh, sort of arranged into this financial caste system where the bottom half of Americans have absolutely no financial knowledge, let alone financial capital to invest with at all. You know, right. Four out of five Americans live paycheck to paycheck in the first place and are not investing. So it's, it's predominantly an upper middle class activity to begin with. But even the upper class traders are at a huge disadvantage and are basically the, the suckers for larger institutional traders. They're not supposed to be the winners, you know? You can win, but you can win through the system. And the system wants you to basically put all your money into abstract things like market indices in the first place so that they can use that money to create more liquidity for themselves. They don't want you to say short, you know, a particularly Mm -hmm. bad company. They don't want you betting against their bets and they will maintain the sort of like democratic, financialized world as it stands, as long as that caste system of information as, is in place, as long as there is an asymmetrical disparity between institutional investors and the so-called households and individuals who are being drowned in, you, know, ridiculous financial assets that they have no idea how they work whatsoever.
1: Once the people who kind of set up these rules, quote unquote, these, these games of the market, once they start losing with their own rules, that's an unfair advantage that somehow people have. And you even see it with things like Robinhood, where they had to like shut down due to market pressures. Mm-hmm. You know, Robinhood kind of played itself up as this thing that was trying to like, you know, it's in the name Robinhood to try to liberate financial tools to the average person. But in reality, that's not even that's not even what they were trying to do.
0: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's so interesting. Like you said, like, that's what sort of the Robin hood thing completely left out in the open is this company that has the stated ideology of literally, you know, giving money to people giving access to finance so that people can take money for themselves, you know, and mm-hmm. we're against, you know, the institutional investors are our enemy. And then we realized that Robin hood shut down because really they make their money off of massive, angel investment from hedge funds and investment banks who want the trading information from their clients, right? So they're basically selling you down the river. They're selling your information so that you can be asymmetrically bet against by a massive financial institutions. It was, this, it was this beautiful moment of entering the hidden abode of production, to borrow a Marx quote, to see what was actually being produced here. It wasn't, you know, value for the consumers of the product. It was value for the investors of the company.
1: It's important to kind of point out, like, like that particular form of value, because it's not even, like, material or, like, there's not a particular commodity, right, like, that's being produced. Um, mm-hmm. It's almost like the the actual speculation itself.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting what financialization is doing to value, you know? Um Right. And Marx kind of predicted this, you know, you have Marx, like, just off of that phrase that I quoted before, entering the hidden of production, essentially meant that he's, he's going where political economy and economics have mystified value creation, which is in labor. He's showing that you're basically creating value by stealing labor, you know, so you have the closed circuit economy of the CMC, you know, mm-hmm. commodity to money to, you know, to another commodity. And then you have the capitalist sort of open circuit, infinite growth of production when you have M1 to C to M2. Right? But Mm -hmm. Marx actually talks about a third form of capital circulation called fictitious capital. And that's just M1 to M2. And Marx says that, that M1 to M2, the value is created in one of two ways one is the discounting of future payment streams such as like loanable assets right
1: right
0: it's like uh i get more money now because i'm discounting this future payment and two is just the speculation of the price itself you know right so value like you're saying is 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 being created as a semiotic function yeah right? so it's just sign value to material.
1: to sign value
0: exactly Exactly, sign value to sign value, all the way to like you're saying the, the complex, uh, nonlinear calculus of, of like a, a very complex financial derivative. Right. You know, it's interesting to think about what that means. That value now is becoming increasingly created by M one to M two. I'm really interested what you have, what you have to say about what fictitious capital means because i think you had some really interesting things to say about this earlier
1: capital functions on this positive feedback process not just of goods and services being circulated but it's literally mm-hmm. just closing out financial deals like selling s- selling whatever selling not even selling a product just selling business
0: coronavirus has sort of shown that the government itself is being financialized and i'd say this has been happening for a long time but specifically it started in 2008, when the government has fully given in to the logic of financial capital and of risk management, where literally the government finds this financial system to be too important, too big to be left to fail, right, which basically means that the government in this weird corporate socialism is asking as the risk management department for hedge funds and financialized businesses. So that they can operate in a far more speculative mm-hmm. and volatile manner, knowing, you know, in this moral hazard way that that we're, we can't really find our way out of anymore. That the government will always be there to bail them out should they fail. Right. right. So you bring up a oh, good go
1: good point, real quick, just to interject. It's kind of funny how you can see two different approaches at financialization between two disparate countries. Like, for example the way that China opened up stock trading um, in the mm-hmm. 80s and the way that the United States has had its uh, stock trade. Um, mm-hmm. w- you can see a move, like you mentioned, towards fin- financialization of the government itself uh, with acquisition mm-hmm. of um, more and more, what is it called? Oh, I'm tra- We mentioned this earlier, but I've, I forgot the name of it. Um, contract workers? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the United States government itself outsources a lot of its functions to, you know, contract workers. You see this with uh, the NSA. You see this with the CIA. I mean, CIA is a little bit different, but, you know, you see this with a lot of uh, different government agencies mm-hmm. in general. And then with a country like China, of course, a lot of their capital gains are you know, actual material goods being produced and then sold to other countries. But uh, you see this accelerated growth in capital because of these, um, you know, what they open up as uh, capitalism with Chinese characteristics. It's a slogan mm-hmm. they use. Yeah. You know, a lot of that is just actually s- closing out business with foreign countries. And, and just yeah. like the actual influence that China has in foreign affairs, I believe... We saw this with um, like foreign films. But, uh, a lot of people mm-hmm. don't really know this, but uh, Western films can be shown in China as long as they meet certain capital restrictions. Um, so they yeah. they limit and, propaganda. And there's like or, ten,
0: right? Right. I think it's only current- get like 10, ten Western movies or something in a year.
1: Right, and they're always like the biggest like blockbusters, like Avengers, blah blah blah. And then you notice the project placement in those actual um, films. You never see, like, I mean, you'll see it in certain movies with, like, Samsung phones and blah, blah, blah. But you notice the Avengers. How come all of them have Huawei phones? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Exactly. um, And it's to bypass those restrictions. And, you know, on one end, it's, you know, America's hyper entertainment production culture so that's literally the united states makes a lot of their money just from entertainment the entertainment industry Mm -hmm. just powers um yeah our gdp and then the second of you know just to follow on the theme of financialization it's (laughs) closing out those deals closing out selling out those um those purchases those those businesses business affairs
0: yeah i think that's a good point and it's like here's it's like why care why should you be worried about financialization no matter your political ideology but let's say like especially if you're a leftist who who does not think that this current system is is not even equitable or sustainable right Mm -hmm. so the problem with financialization is twofold and i think we've we've touched on both of them but the easier one to understand is these material consequences where money is being literally sort of funneled to the top through sort of structural changes to the economy that make it so that financial companies have sort of like the the most accelerated growth, right? So you have financialization on a material level of, you know, our lives where, you know, things just become more financial, both our own portfolios, the things that we work for. But there's this second level that's that's almost ontologically depressing about financialization. And we spoke about it when we talk about how financialization cause causes life to become subordinated to the logic of financial capital. Mm-hmm. It's, it's this rise of semi capital itself. You know, we talk about how value is created by the arbitration of signs now in right. right, and numbers. And, but it's more than that. It's that like the way we think, the way we speak, the way we're spoken to the way our subjectivity is structured is also subordinated to that semi capital. Right. We're, we're quite literally ontologically stuck because of this, you know, there's, there's a lot at stake here.
1: Right. And I mean, just to kind of follow up on that theme, it's like that business ontology that Mark Fisher kind of talks about, um, mm-hmm. and it kind of permeates a lot of different aspects. You, you can call it capitalist realism, you can call it finance or business ontology but a lot of it just kind of stems in like different layers, and we can definitely go into like each individual layer because I think it manifests itself in different, you know, real concrete ways, uh, from the way yeah. that people are referred to as consumers as opposed to just people, um, right? Or you know, just numbers on a particular graph. You know, it's like um, as opposed to you know seeing people in terms of laborers it's more of the, how would I say it? Like the, the production quota, for example. Um, mm-hmm. So just literally lines on a graph. Uh, the other one would be an, um, the way that they talk about unemployment, for example, um, is in direct reference to gross domestic product as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, how many people are actually homeless, uh, things like that, that are just right. kind of left on the wayside and then on top of that you had what i mentioned in terms of you know just administrative top heavy bureaucratic business ontology which is mm-hmm. manifested in different ways you can see this with your boss um the way that they just talk to you as a as a worker you know mm-hmm. capital or fin- the fine the finance way of speaking is very politically correct right but it's always to mask behind this more um how would I say it? it's more dark or more?
0: Yeah. It's like this lingo, this lingo, this business lingo that hides uh sociopathy in my mind. Right. It's like a if if you spoke calmly and like in a normal language, you would just be saying something sociopathic, you know. You'd be like, we need right. to fire more people because we can't pay for the health insurance, you know? But instead <laughs> it's like, you know, we need to synergize and consolidate our overhead costs so that the company can operate more synergistically you know exactly and
1: i think you bring up a good point because uh the same way that it's used as a mechanism for kind of just to kind of say it poorly to kind of pamper up or make something that sounds gross palatable um Mm. it's also used as a tactic of control uh in a foucauldian Mm -hmm. sense the the way that they the way that you're supposed to behave in the office, the way that you're supposed to behave or talk, you know, it's like, oh, well we care about for things like, you know, quote-unquote sexual harassment, and then you actually go and present that information to your HR, uh, which is mm. supposed to be, you know, the actual third party, they're not supposed to be biased towards the business or towards you, but in most cases they're mm. obviously working, you know, they're who who pays mm. their they're paycheck, so how can they be <laughs> <laughs> um this removed third party um yeah and so a lot of in in a lot of ways that language is also just used to quote unquote like control you uh control the way that you talk control the behavior that you have what's deemed appropriate Mm -hmm. in the office what's what's deemed even appropriate outside the office right you know it's like you you could be subject to being fired just for for saying something wrong on twitter
0: yeah Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that, that all encompassing control, the social control that you're talking about is sort of the, I think, misunderstood consequence of financialization that's probably the most insidious, you know? And I really want to talk uh, a little bit later before we end the podcast about the ways that we fight financialization or the ways that we deal with financialization in order to survive it on the material and psychosocial level before that though i'm really interested in something that i know you do writing on and always have really interesting things to say about that i'm only now learning about just because i'm pretty not very well well read on these these types of assets but the idea of crypto financialization I really want to get into this before uh, we move on to to responses to financialization. But would you provide maybe a, a, a concise uh, summary of how youth of what you think crypto financialization is, whether in relation to what we talked about in financialization or as a unique process in and of itself?
1: I think that's a good kind of shelf um, way to start that off. Cause I, how would I put it? The way that I see it is just the transformation of current assets, whether financial assets or material assets, and then converting them to crypto assets. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's how I would kind of roughly view it. And you see this more and more as a centralized movement. So, the thing that kind of people know about cryptocurrency, if if you don't know anything and you're just kind of exposed to it, it's two things. Cryptography, so obviously it being kind of secure, you know, being a bit more low-key about what it does or how the ledger works. And then the other one would be decentralization. I think that's the two major components that make up uh, cryptocurrencies. Or at least like what somebody would understand a cryptocurrency being. And so in that sense yeah. when we talk about the financialization of cryptos it's the centralization in my opinion of these cryptocurrencies. Um mm-hmm. so you have people like CEOs like you know Elon Musk, uh Jack Dorsey from Twitter literally buying right. out an extravagant amount of these assets because they can because they have that that money. Yeah. And then converting you know part of their wealth into uh crypto wealth or you know cryptocurrency right um which does one of two things which we can get into but the primary one is just the centralization in terms of uh like market cap so mm-hmm. in in terms of speculate spe- speculation Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are very volatile, which means their price can go up or it can go down really fast uh, for a mm-hmm. number of reasons, which we can go into. But uh, I'll just keep it simple for now. Uh, but what that does, what buying extensive amounts of assets of cryptocurrencies does is it solidifies its floor. So instead of having mm-hmm. an incredibly volatile cryptocurrency, what you have is a more um, stable, uh, at least projectable price that it can have Mm -hmm. so for example i believe they said or they 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 kind of kept mentioning this as a potential that uh, i think jack dorsey spent i want to say it's one million but it's i think he spent way more than that uh dollars billion (laughs) yeah yeah, i think it it was it was quite a bit um I, i have to look up the source but um it was so much crypto that it was speculated that it would cap or it would create a floor a price floor for cryptocurrency right Bitcoin itself could not go any lower than that ever again. Essentially is what they were speculating. Uh, whether or not that's hmm. true, that uh, that's remains to be seen. Right. Uh, but, th- you know, that creates real, real issues. If cryptocurrency is supposed to be this decentralized um, distributed ledger, well,
0: mm-hmm. what,
1: what is the buy-in ratio in terms of being able to actually obtain uh, cryptocurrency? you know, actually being able yeah. to trade it with other forms of currency if it has such a high floor ceiling or floor and ceiling. Um, and then the other part of it would just be the transformation of assets to cryptos and what, what that looks like. So one would be how much of your quote-unquote net worth is in crypto, right? Uh, why does that matter? Well, right. you, you you control a larger portion of the, the ledger of the, the blockchain itself. And right, That does the same thing as you know buying a large set of assets which is it creates a market ceiling or a market floor Mm -hmm. just even the buying of being able to be part or be a node in this distributed ledger goes down with Mm -hmm. big players like elon jack dorsey buying such large assets and i I think part of it would just be they don't want these assets to go down because they have a high stake on it jack dorsey Mm -hmm. always talks about decentralization of the market because of, you know, things like Twitter. He, like in reality, he just wants to control those things. He wants Twitter right. to be more like crypto, not because it's, not because he's like an advocate of democracy, but because he, he wants to be the one that's controlling the information traffic. That's all he really cares about.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'm super interested in this because I have seen the institutionalization of sort of like crypto optimism in silicon valley and i wondered if that means that it's sort of like you're saying becoming uh a more stable asset in some way or will be will be used to replace other financial assets or financial uh currencies Mm -hmm. but i always wonder is this is this almost like sociological self-selection in that are these just the people who of course are going to be like these techno libertarian, you know, crypto people are basically the people like Jack Dorsey, like Zuckerberg, these people who have a techno optimism to them already. So I can't decide if these, if this like sort of, uh, if yeah. cryptocurrency is being fully ad- adopted and adapted to the tech financial world, Or if this is just a result of that these people really want that to happen, because I I don't think there's a good chance that something like Bitcoin will come to replace an actual fiat currency because Bitcoin just has too much volatility and it kind of defeats the purpose of a currency held by a government. And, you know, these, these various reserve currencies that sort of guarantee low volatility, a pretty close pegging to certain currencies and can stabilize the market so that it's not volatile. Like I, I think if Bitcoin can become extremely stable, that's one thing. But then you have this problem of a country like China, I don't think would ever crypto financialize because they receive a lot of their asymmetric power from sort of gaming the current financial system by basically having a manipulated currency, you know, they're, they're basically manipulating the current financial system to their advantage, which would, I'm not sure if you could even do that with crypto cryptocurrencies of any kind through like a central bank. Like if you can't print more, then there's going to be an issue for governments to adopt them as their fiat currency. So my thing is like, I don't see the... The world they see but i think that there might be this sort of like long-standing power of bitcoin to basically come to replace like palladium or like precious metals you know right. especially the more vault not gold per se maybe they'll be like a gold coin but more like a palladium or like a pork belly futures type of thing where It becomes part of everyday trading as a financial asset, but never reaches that level of functionality or stability to be operational as a, you know, actual key to financial circuitry.
1: I think you bring up a lot of good points (laughs) and we can go different, like on different tangents, and I kind of want to go through all of them. Um, (laughs) The the first one would just be um, in terms of, what is it called? the point that you made about you know there's there's a certain of a there's a certain sense of accountability that governments have when you print out fiat currency right so mm-hmm. you can stimulate it, you can stimulate an economy uh, you can print more money things like that you can't print more bitcoin right um you you literally can't you can't you, you can make a new blockchain or you can kind of recycle um, that information kind of like with ethereum um but you can't actually create new new coins you can't mint new coins and so right. me and one of my friends were kind of talking about this uh we were talking about how something like twitter for example if they created their own neo-cameralist state right this libertarian right. utopia that they seem to advocate for um mm-hmm. if there's no centralized Government minting these coins. uh When it comes to something like a market recession, how would they how would they boost or how would they how would they how would yeah. they inject capital to kind of help out it's, yeah, it's... these individuals? And, and th- there is there is no possibility. There there's no real sense of accountability no. in this case. And I feel like that's the kind I think of that's... yeah. Go ahead.
0: Just a quick aside. I think that's why someone like Nick Land or. People like him love cryptocurrency because it's almost like a forcing the financial system into Austrian economics, you know, You can't have inflation or the manipulability of a fiat currency, then you're going to have sort of like the Austrian economics response, which if you know, like during a recession, instead of stimulus helping the economy get back on its feet, they just let demand drop and wages drop until they reach a stability where, you know, everybody's working for like one third of the price <laughs> right. that they were getting paid before. <laughs> so the economy can function again, you know, it's like, yeah, that, yep. that's a pretty abysmal financial system to the, but it's, it's sort of like the fetishism for the Austrian school.
1: And you, you bring up a really good point because that also brings a good point in terms of me- metabolization of a, a state. So mm. the, the buyback potentiality of something like, if a if a if a gov- system of governance, for example, let's assume we're living in this libertarian patchwork utopia, um, mm-hmm. if a state's not functioning, then you can just li- liquidate all of its assets,
0: and that's that's exactly yeah. what they
1: you know it's like this the Austrian school of thought. You just let it hit market equilibrium, and you just mm-hmm. <laughs> let it fall or you let it dissolve, um, right? Because what they're doing is essentially, uh, you know. <laughs> darwinism applied to economics
0: exactly yeah it is social darwinism to it um yeah
1: but i mean just kind of with like just crypto in general i mean like you mentioned it's just this lack of centralized accountability like um you know it's like who would pay for these public goods and services well you wouldn't you would you would pay a service fee the, the same way that the market seems to be moving towards um, more and more, uh, like service. Or how would I say like the, like service economy? Like, you know, you see more and more yeah. people pay for New York, the you know like New York Times subscription, Netflix, yeah. uh, you know things like that. So you you pay for yeah. your services, as opposed to right. having these public goods. And you know, Mark Fisher again kind of talks a lot about this. You know, you used to have public housing in the UK um the railway the you know they oh they always talked about how it would never be privatized and then next thing you know um it was absorbed by the by private corporations and then uh you know it, it's always this ad, this the advocacy for improvement right once it becomes privatized well then it's open to competition and it'll become better uh but you actually never right. you, you never actually see that finalized through neoliberal finance economies if anything you, you right use, you just see a micro form of this Stalinist uh, bureaucratic system that they that they advocate is what they're fighting against. You just see it f- pop right. up in these <laughs> micro, micro fungal forms. So it's a bunch of these little micro states pop up as opposed to just one centralized node that you can actually hold accountable.
0: Right. Yeah. It just like breeds way more corruption than than would solve you know right their whole thing is like oh well if you have somebody step in and you know make decisions and don't let the transactions just kind of go where they may and you try to impose a certain equitability that's when corruption and like you know the fuckery gets going right but it's like yeah well when you take away any ability to account for institutions or individuals then you have just like the brutish nasty and short lives that (laughs) Hobbes talked about you know like right
1: which i think it's funny that you bring up Hobbes and like this notion of Leviathan which is um which is what I I don't get maybe this is a bit more of a tangent how people kind of relate this neocameralist system to just the rise of like an inverted Leviathan in the Hobbesian sense Mm -hmm. and I I kind of never understood it that way I kind of see it as a um you know how would I say it like yes, it's 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 Leviathan esque, but it's not actually the resurgence of a a, a state. Like when people ask what's right. the function of a state, it's to, in my opinion, enforce a monopoly on violence, and then the other mm-hmm. one would be to, if we're being Hobbesian here, to kind of uh, you know, not devolve into the state of nature. Um, right. And so, you know, if if you have something like if you're just creating this social darwinism you are already in the state of nature yeah so, so there's no there's no real incentive to kind of formulate these these isolated groups or these pseudo corporate states these corporate leviathans because um you know they always talk about exit but you can't exit if you're already dead
0: yeah yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, that's really well put. Like, yeah, there really is no exit to this in a certain respect, and you can't, you can't avoid it. Like, the thing about financialization that you brought up earlier, and it's exactly like you're saying, the sort of like Hobbesian state of nature that it kind of brings on. I think is evident in the breakdown of the Soviet Union, which you mentioned before, in which sort of Western financial interests were able to finally topple the the state and then in its place they these financial interests come in and just loot the country you know and it just becomes an oligopoly you know that that seems to be the future of the relationship between multinational corporations and states as you see today in America like the idea that Amazon like has so much power that they're going to make, like, your city pay them to build <laughs> jobs there is so ridiculous. Like, if you think that the state government has more power than any of the top 100 multinational corporations that pay no taxes and that just receive money from the government, that's that's a ridiculous thing to think, you know? Right. The piece of failure, the whole Westphalian system of, of statehood, is beyond obsolete compared to the multinational corporations. And we don't have any tools to properly deal with multinational finance because there's this race to the bottom to provide the lowest taxes, the lowest wages, the, the best, most exploitable you know, place for finance capital to come so that you can get a little sliver of that wealth that's being produced right. there.
1: you know just like the kind of power that these corporations have um yeah to kind of create this this dichotomy in the way that that corporations and the state kind of have handled this you see in the united states that by and large the state works for the corporations you know a lot of you know like citizens united for Mm -hmm. example that was explicitly you know as much as you want to straddle the fence or pretend that it's not but it's literally giving rights to corporations. It's treating corporations as, uh, actual individuals as opposed to an aggregate of individuals. Um, and something like China where you have what, what most people I would say would call state capitalism. It's not, you know, you know, it's like the, it's like that quote about like the, their slogan, you know, it's like, well, we can have democracy or whatever once we have bread. Um, right so it's it's the use of capital to kind of solidify or re-edify the states so not to not the state working for capital it's quite the opposite right. it's the you know the financial markets in direct subjugation to this top heavy central node um, right and so it's just kind of this weird dichotomy you know the united states is is really just bolstering kind of making people like jeff bezos elon musk um you know making them more and more like uh like the monarchs in a, in a true sense I, and i i think uh you could say something about like patchwork realism you know um mm-hmm. with you know just corporations getting more and more um how would i say it just more like liberty than actual people like you know you mentioned how yeah. ta- tax they don't even pay taxes um right And that, that's, you know, how how does, I think a lot of people think that, oh, maybe if, maybe if they, we have all these rights, all these liberties and freedoms in the United States. And if I just work hard enough, I can, I can become rich too. I can become the next Jeff Bezos. And, you know, libertarians kind of present this worldview too, where it's like, well, if we didn't have the state, then we wouldn't have crony capitalism. And so Mm -hmm. you know everyone could just have their own business, and it's like you really think that everyone's going to be successful (laughs) running their own Etsy wine glass, (laughs) right? right, uh, Yeah, you know, like store, like,
0: (laughs) you're diluted. Okay, so yeah, I so now that now that we've kind of gone over that, I think it's time to sort of like talk about what to do about it. Like, what what are the options here? What do we do to combat these historical processes, you know? Mm-hmm. I know me personally, I have two, two solutions that, to me, deal with the two aspects of the material and semiocapital aspects of what's going on here. For me, obviously when it comes to financialization, we need to sort of, you know, if you're a Marxist, you need to sort of throw away the orthodox Marxism You know as we've as as we've talked about earlier like marx is extremely helpful for analyzing capital and he's an extremely helpful person for developing weapons to fight finance capital Mm -hmm. but marx could not have predicted that capitalism would enter into fictitious capital this quickly his entire analysis is sort of based on the production of labor value and so you can't fight finance capital in the same way that you fought industrial capital in the nineteenth century. You know right. There's no node to fight. What you essentially need to do in, in sort of the shield de Luz sense is to look for new weapons. But you know how Marx said the capitalists will, you know, be the ones to sell us the rope that we hang them with or <laughs> something along those lines? Yeah. I think that's exactly what financialization is doing here. It's providing the weapons that can topple its empire. It is providing You know, it's not providing the information necessary to use them, but it is literally providing the most, you know, financial assets of or financial products of mass destruction that can absolutely be used to create wealth and are invented to create wealth, but can be used for the exact opposite. And what you need to understand is that, like we talked about, the finance capital is all about securing the future, securing the future reproduction of capital, Right. Like we talked about marx's fictitious capital the big thing is discounting a future to pay for now right right so the people who loan you money are controlling your future that's just literally how it works they're controlling what you pay every year they're controlling how much money you're going to have for the foreseeable future and by virtue they control the reproduction of society at its very core because they control the future of financial transactions right right so we need, to, we need to fight on the level of the future itself, and we need to fight on the level of capital itself. I believe that Leotard was right to say that the financial markets are the new war zone, the new battleground. And I think GameStop took this in a step of the right direction, and it showed just how dangerous using finance against the financial empire can be. Mm-hmm. But we need, to, we need to start realizing that financial assets are nothing to be looked at as if they're inherently bad, if they're inherently immoral, right? Financial assets can be used to exploit the very problems that we see in society and that we see in the financial markets. You can bet on the increasing volatility, the increasing craziness of the market, and that money can be used for something that's not exchangeable in the market. There can be mutual aid networks that buy volatility futures. There can be mutual aid networks that basically run like hedge funds and secure a future for people that actually provides some sort of autonomous form of living outside of these very systems of financial capital that we need to fight inside of. I think there's some, some possibilities here. But I think what's more important, especially on the individual level, is fighting this, this absolute control, this strangulation on the soul of being, you know, at the hands of semi-capital. Mm-hmm. We need to break free of this weird, autonomistic writing, this weird way of thinking, this way of creating a life based on the ever increasing value of your financial assets, it needs to be squashed. And I truly believe the only way to break out of semiocapital capital is through poetry, is through showing that words can mean more than their utilitarian value. I think the more poetry you write, the more poetic your language becomes, the more you are flying in the face of a a country, a system, a financial empire that will increasingly reduce you to a little autonomism of financial logic.
1: Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of really good points here. Um, The first one that I really was just really attracted to um, would just be that whole notion that there are certain things that capital just cannot let's just say, to, to use Jill Deleuze's language, cannot deterritorialize, cannot corrode. And you, you mentioned this, you know, it's the metaphysics, the epistemology of modernity, which is just, I would say, like this utilitarian utility um, hegemony. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I take Bataille very serious. We have to take this this notion of waste. There are things that are just not consumable or capturable in a, in a logical, rational sense in the same way that we take finance capital to follow this logic you know not everything has to be governed by the sense of utility of uh, i think this is why i advocate for this notion of free time because you know when you when you have free time that's when you actually have time for innovation and innovation doesn't mean what i think people think of when they mean innovation which is the optimization of future capital which that's all it re- really is when they think, oh, well, this saves me right. time. It's saving you time for what to make more capital as opposed to yeah. saving you free time to have leisure. Le- leisure is the opposite. Leisure is the ability to use your time for complete waste. And, and in that sense, it's like right. we, we all have to become uh, battalions in, in that sense. And that notion of there, are, there are things that we actually produce in life or that we do with our lives that are not fruitful that they don't they don't get internalized back into something something greater like not everything boils down to numbers or to the economy or to the production of capital something that can be
0: sold right yeah i agree completely like i think adorno is right when he says that the way that you could fight this is by making something beautiful and making something that can't be sold you don't have to constantly be making something that's going to make you money that's going to utilize your life and you don't need to utilize your life true resistance to the logic of financialization is exactly what you brought up you know the idea of communism as free time will be increasingly important and the idea of not constantly valuing numbers in your bank account the numbers in your stock portfolio is the smallest and strongest act of resistance against ever increasing finance,
1: and it, it just kind of to piggyback off something that you mentioned earlier, which was this whole notion of this kind of like Marxist orthodoxy that I think people kind of get hung up on in terms of this moralization of we have to use these you know these old tactics that worked for um, you know this you know Marxist uh, kind of stance on labor capitalism as we could call it um Mm -hmm. you know it's 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 like we really need to stop with this moralization uh and follow more um i would say radical you could always say following in the in the same line of flight as like libertarians uh you could you could correct me if i'm wrong but um this kind of like creating new formations new assemblages um they don't have to be Marxist. Marxist isn't reducible down to just this particular stance or this particular position or these particular set of tactics to be Marxist. Yeah. And just the broadest sense of um, critiquing or going against capitalism in some sense, that's a really open book. And maybe we should start coming up with new ways of what being Marxist even means. Um, right. And so what new tool, like you mentioned this, which is, which is, coming from the postscript of societies of control which is you know we, we yeah. just have to come up with new new weapons and it's and it's like what kind of social arrangements can we create what social organs of power can we instantiate with right um these tools that are already imminent within the system you know finance capital uh, you know setting up i think you brought up a really good example which i think is not often f- emphasized enough on the left which is the left really needs to get a hand uh, on capital itself. They need to actually yes. contain or have capital to actually do anything functional. Um, yeah. I think that what are the, mutual aid um, organizations are amazing. They're great. But if mm-hmm. you don't have capital to actually sustain them,
0: then you don't have That's really exactly. anything. You need to direct that money. The money is there, you know, to be re- redirected. It's like you're saying, you know, it's you know it's important this is a neo vitalist podcast so obviously we're advocating for a poetic insurrection against semi-o-capital, but mm-hmm. it, i think part of neo vitalism and and both of our philosophies is that it's you know when it comes to critiquing financialization or politics generally it's not about being right it's right. it's about it's about creating the tools necessary to live the life morally aesthetically Structurally, that you think is best, or that you and your friends think are best, right? It's right. not about getting rid of the society. Financialization will be around for forever until it, until it drags society into the ground. It'll, it'll be the heat engine of history, and you're not going to change that necessarily. I mean, maybe we can if we, if we all get together enough. But what you can do is you can fight what's prescribed to you. You can fight. The method of living that is that is superimposed onto your life, and you can live differently.
1: Yeah, I I really agree with that, Um, especially with what Deleuze calls becoming imperceptible, which is, you know, uh, there's different interpretations of what that really means. But the way that I take it is partly becoming imperceptible is really just living a way, or like you mentioned, living this lifestyle, which is not yet coded. It's not been yet territorialized. Um you know, Deleuze kinda talks about this in terms of, you know, philosophy is about map making, you know, charting out new lands and, you know, making a map out of it. Um, charting them out, graphing them out, drawing them out. Um, in the same way that a cartographer makes maps. Um, and that's really what it, the neo-vitalist approach really is. You know, it's this its this tactic of mapping out new potentialities, new ways of living. And if that means becoming imperceptible, then that means um, kind of formulating your life or the way that you say something or structure your life in a way that's not yet been coded.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, this is a neo-vitalist podcast we love you and we want you to live a life that is as vital as possible whatever that means for you you know yeah we don't we don't want you to live our lives we don't want you to live as we see it but just like just like everyone else the world is it's becoming increasingly codified it's becoming increasingly controlled and it's becoming increasingly monolithic in it's goal of financial value and production. So it's 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 radical enough to not subscribe to that. (laughs) I don't care what ideology you are from the far left to the far right to the far up and the far down. uh, You know, financialization means a monolithic way of living a monolithic way of being. And that's not something that we should accept at face value, no matter who you are.